What are the seven deadly sins of institutional bad faith? What are the seven claims management practices that can attract institutional bad faith claims? Hi, this is Kevin Quinley of Quinley Risk Associates, and I'm going to welcome you to this week's episode of The Claims Coach. This is the podcast delivering tips, tools, and techniques to help great claim and risk professionals get even better at managing their claims, their time, their resources, and their careers. So last week in part one on institutional bad faith, we defined our terms. We talked about institutional bad faith versus the run-of-the-mill insurance bad faith claim. And I promised that this week we would get specific, down and dirty, in the nitty-gritty of institutional bad faith. So what I'm going to do is to talk about what I call seven targets, seven management practices and claims that can attract institutional bad faith claims. Now let me make clear, I'm not saying that any one of these is institutional bad faith. Some of these claims may not be valid. They may not be viable, but they're going to be made nevertheless. So the fact that management practices here are identified and on the list does not serve necessarily as an indictment of the practices only, that these are practices that are often targeted by plaintiff and bad faith law firms for, for institutional bad faith. A couple of other disclaimers are in order. First, I am not an attorney, so the following comments are not legal conclusions. They're not legal advice. Number two, as I've mentioned, just identifying management practices that can invite bad faith claims does not impugn such practices. It doesn't imply that these practices are always bad. In fact, I think each practice in some cases can be structured in ways to mitigate bad faith exposures. But just like a magnet attracts metal filings, certain claims management practices attract institutional bad faith claims. And also, what I'm about to say should not give the impression that these claims are a lock for plaintiff victory. You know, anyone can make a claim. Anyone can assert bad faith. Anyone can criticize claims management practices. Sustaining that claim in a court of law is expensive, it's arduous, and it's fraught with uncertainty. But nevertheless, even unsuccessful institutional bad faith claims can drain defendant companies. When you, when you defeat one, those wins can be pyrrhic victories. Successfully defending an institutional bad faith claim can take a toll in legal fees, a drain on management time, the future cost of insurance, and even the ability to procure additional future E&O coverage because of high loss ratios from discovery and defense expenses. It can become the functional equivalent and financial equivalent of the operation was a success, but the patient died. So let's, let's get down to it. Extra contractual liability claims falling under the heading, falling into the bucket of institutional bad faith often flow from any of the following allegations. I'm going to cover four of those practices this week and the remaining three next week. Number one, financial incentive compensation tied to claim spend reductions or savings. 
when management ties adjuster base or bonus compensation to lowering indemnity payments, that invites institutional bad faith claims. <clears throat> Opposing counsel will argue, and I've seen this on innumerable cases where I've been retained as an expert witness on bad faith, they will argue that these schemes impose on adjusters an inherent conflict of interest. Uh, adjusters are supposed to assist policyholders within reason, the plaintiff will argue, and to pay meritorious claims. I don't think that many people can uh, argue with that. And, and, and some attorneys will argue that insurers have even a fiduciary duty toward policyholders. By contrast, compensation plans that seek payment reductions could motivate adjusters to resist even legitimate claims. And so plaintiff attorneys will use compensation plans that reward employees for lowering claim payments as evidence that the insurance company tempts adjusters to underpay legitimate claims in order to maximize their compensation. And one signpost of this is that they, if they ask as part of their production the personnel files or personnel records of the claim professionals handling the case. So linking compensation to reducing expenses invites arguments that the adjusters will scrimp on, also scrimp on quality defense counsel, scrimp on thorough case workup, reasonable investigations, and not use appropriate vendors like rehabilitation agencies or IME physicians or qualified defense counsel or cause and origin experts or engineers in order to lower expenses and boost their income. In one case that I was involved with, the insurance company's management judged a supervisor so adept at denying coverage that it honored him. That was the phrase that it used. It honored him by making him the department review person for all coverage denials or questions. His, his performance review noted that he had denied coverage on about 60 cases over the past review year. That means averaging over one coverage denial per week. This was on the positive praise side of the ledger. So the fact that the coverage denials prompted management to honor, that's the insurance company's term, not mine, to honor him and centralized review of coverage issues at his desk, we argue reflected a corporate culture focused on denial, the king of denial. This management practice was a landmine for institutional bad faith allegations and the case eventually settled. Now, <clears throat> nothing is wrong with contesting coverage if there are reasonable grounds for doing so. The problem, though, is that explicit or implicit department or company incentives that induce adjusters to stand out in a good way by denying claims based on no liability or based on no coverage. That's where you enter the danger zone. So in institutional bad faith claims, one discovery avenue will be not only adjuster compensation, both base compensation and contingent or bonus compensation, but also other ways that insurance companies might incentivize underpaying legitimate claims by encouraging adjusters to meet budget on either indemnity and or expense payments. And the argument will be that upper management sets goals, whether it's quarterly or annually, for indemnity or expense payments and makes adjusters accountable for meeting those targets. And that's target number one.
as a management practice. Number two, cost cutting by maximizing caseloads, overloading adjusters with files. In any bad faith case, you can expect deposition questions to the adjusters and perhaps the supervisors and managers. Uh, deposition questions, requests for production on things like average caseloads per adjuster. The argument here is that the insurance companies profit by maximizing the number of claims per adjuster to minimize their labor costs. The rationale is, is that by overloading adjusters, the carrier keeps even the most capable claims people from doing a quality job in investigating, evaluating, or negotiating claims. And so the argument goes, this is the plaintiff's narrative, the insurer benefits by cutting labor's costs and maximizing profits. Now, the topic of optimum adjuster caseload could warrant a separate podcast in itself. Th there's no industry consensus dictating the number that reflects the, quote, ideal caseload, though there may be agreement as to what an unreasonable caseload would be. You know, it's sort of like the definition of pornography. I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. But that's a second area, maximizing profit by minimizing expenses through maximizing caseload per adjuster. That's area number two. Management practice number three, failure to train adjusters on applicable good faith, bad faith regulations and practices. As an expert witness on bad faith in over 100 cases across the country, I do see claims where, during depositions, adjusters testify that they've received no training ever on good faith or bad faith claim practices. And some testify that they are unaware of the Unfair Claim Settlement Practices Act in the states where they are handling claims. These are often devastating admissions. They help plaintiffs' counsel spin a narrative to juries such as this. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the insurance company doesn't care about its adjusters handling claims fairly and in good faith. They won't spend, the insurance company won't spend the time or the money to train its staff. And they unleash this staff on you, unsuspecting consumers. They unleash adjusters who are ignorant of their obligations to handle claims in a good faith manner. Now, these themes are easier for plaintiff attorneys to pitch if insurers see good faith, bad faith claiming, good faith, bad faith claims training as a frill and expendable, an expense which is a candidate for the budget meat cleaver. The takeaway here is this for management. View good faith training as an investment, not a cost. If you think continuing education is expensive, Consider the cost of one bad faith claim. As Dr. Phil would say, how's that working out for you? Moreover, one-time training is not a career-long inoculation against ignorance. The training should be recurring. Now, there's no industry consensus or set guideline for the ideal frequency, but it is not a one-and-done exercise. And the training doesn't have to be formal. It can be formal or informal. It can be online. It can be internet or intranet based. It can be through in-house claim staff presentations or in-house counsel. It can be through articles and memos that management circulates throughout the claim staff. It can be through messages from corporate leadership. 
It can be through inviting outside presenters like coverage attorneys or even plaintiff lawyers to address the claim staff. It goes beyond just making sure that the adjusters are appropriately licensed, although that is, that's something that should be done, even though that's, that is still one element of regulatory compliance. The point here is don't hand bad faith attorneys ammunition, making their jobs easier by skimping on training adjusters on good faith, bad faith obligations. Through various means and media, formal, informal training, on-site, off-site, attending seminars covering the topic, make sure adjusters know their duties and responsibilities and the hot buttons and the consequences that can befall them and their companies by breaching sound claim practices. And that's area number three. The fourth management practice that can attract institutional bad faith claims is substituting computer evaluation software for adjuster judgment, especially in bodily injury investigations and evaluations. Now, I see this less and less nowadays, but the argument here is that companies will game or tweak or calibrate the software to produce artificially low valuations on meritorious claims and or that management keeps adjusters from exercising independent discretion by substituting a computer program for the adjuster's analysis. The challenge here may not necessarily be through the use of computer valuation software. It's not that the software is bad, but whether the valuation of damaged property or bodily injury is being misused as a tool. You know, you can use a hammer to build a, a beautiful structure. You can also use it as a murder weapon. The issue isn't the hammer. The issue is how it is used or misused. So institutional bad faith claims may indict a company's claim evaluation approach through the use of software, over-reliance on software, alleging that management designs or misapplies systems to underpay legitimate claims, first or third party claims, or substitute the software for the reasoned assessment of experienced claim professionals. And with the advent of the application of artificial intelligence or AI to the claims area, we may see a resurgence of software and AI as a claims evaluation tool, which is going to raise some interesting bad faith questions. So this isn't to say that all computerized software evaluation tools are illegitimate or that using them equals bad faith. But due to the prevalence of bad faith claims against companies using evaluation software, some firms have avoided or downplayed using these tools, but that may change with the refinement and development of artificial intelligence tools. Okay, those are four management practice areas that can attract institutional bad faith claims. In our next installment, we're going to talk about the other three to round out our seven deadly management sins list, if you will. Hey, if you like the content here, please subscribe to the Claims Coach podcast on iTunes and leave a review. For more information on Quinley Risk Associates and my menu of services, please visit me on the web at www.kevinquinley.com or connect with me on Twitter. It's at Claims Coach. That's one word, at Claims Coach. Or connect with me through LinkedIn. 
But I want to thank you for listening and be sure to check back for future claims and risk management podcasts from Quinley Risk Associates.